Advent, the Sundays before Christmas, is the beginning of the church year. So each year we uh, start the new year before Christmas, not on New Year's Day. Uh, but now the two years have caught up, so we're in the new year in both senses. And the lectionary readings, which are the readings that are given to the churches across the world to, as they choose to follow each week, uh, this year is going to focus on Matthew. So the story of Jesus' baptism that we're about to hear comes from Matthew's Gospel, and it'll be Matthew's Gospel that will follow most of the year uh, throughout the lectionary readings. So this is how Matthew told us about the birth, uh, uh, sorry, about the baptism of Jesus. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so for now. For it is proper for us in this way to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus had been baptised, just as he came up from the water, suddenly the heavens were opened to him and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, the Beloved, with whom I am well pleased. For the word of God in scripture, for the word of God among us, for the word of God within us. This question might not have occurred to you, but it's occurred to lots of scholars throughout the time of reading the Bible and the birth of the Christian church and on to today. Why did Jesus get baptised? If you take the view, as many Christians have done over a long period of time, that Jesus was perfect, sinless Son of God, then he didn't need to be baptised in the way John understood baptism, which was, as we know in the other Gospels, not so much in Matthew, but it's still there, that baptism is a way of demonstrating that you've repented, in other words, turned around, and you're no longer going to live the way you were, which was wrong, and you're going to live right. Righteousness, as Jesus says. That was the purpose of baptism, as far as John was concerned. So, why does Jesus need to be baptised? Is he sort of pretending? Is it a show? Well, that's kind of what you're left with. If, If there's no necessity for it, Jesus is just kind of showing or getting down with the great unwashed literally, pretending to be amongst us, but not really of us. Many paintings uh, of this era, this was painted in uh, 1470, uh, 1440, 1470 sometime, this Leonardo da Vinci, and it's not so bad because Jesus does appear to be standing on something. But in lots of paintings of Jesus of this period, he's hovering above the ground. He's not like a real person. Everyone else is standing firm on the ground like the rest of us, but he's sort of hovering because, well, Jesus was sort of pretending to be human, but he really wasn't. It's basically Superman. He was wearing the gear, and he was, but when, when trouble came, he could whip off the glasses, 
put on the red underpants and would be the real person, who he really was. But this is a later development that Christians have worked on. It's not actually the way Jesus or the Gospels or Paul talked about the experience of Jesus. Jesus, in fact, the only time he talked about himself was he called himself the Son of Man, or a better translation of that is the human one, a human being. It was very clear to Jesus that he was human, he was one of us. It wasn't the sense that he was pretending. There was no sense that Jesus was uh, immune to all of the things that we deal with was one of us. He called himself a human one. And when he was baptised, he says to John, the reason why we're doing this is to fulfil all righteousness. Now that can easily be seen as the difference between good and bad. I'm righteous because I don't smoke, drink, swear or go to the movies or whatever it was that my parents had to suffer through as young people. Um, And I'm very moral and so I'm righteous. That's Kind of one way of looking at it, but it's not the only way, and it's actually not the way much of the scriptures talk about righteousness. It's not right as opposed to wrong, but right in the sense of completeness. You know, you, you can have it. Let's imagine, I hope this might have been true for you, you were with friends or family over Christmas. And it wasn't a particularly hot day, as I recall, even though we'd had terribly hot days either side. You could imagine yourself, if it was a perfectly good day, coming to the end of it and saying, that was just right. The right people were there, the right temperature, the right kind of food, the right kind of atmosphere. We loved each other's company. It's right in a different kind of way. A kind of a sense of completeness. It just felt right. That's a way of looking at righteousness that Jesus might have been talking about here. That Jesus is saying, let's do this because it makes a completeness of things. It brings things together. Because to be baptised is to submit to having somebody do something to you. You can't baptise yourself in the Christian church. It has to be somebody else who does it to you. And in fact, in Jesus' time, in John's time, the way you got baptised was the way the Baptist churches and other denominations do it now. They're not interested in tossing a bit of water on a baby like we do. And, you know, we don't want to get water all over the carpet and we're very practical. But if we were to do it properly, or at least one way of doing it, is you get somebody and you shove their head under the water and then you hold them there. And then you hold them there and then you drag them out. Like the poem said, spluttering, death into life, dirty into clean, all kinds of wonderful metaphors. You can't baptise yourself, you have it done to you, you submit to the way the world is. You didn't get here by yourself. Somebody went through great travail to give birth to you. You didn't do it. In fact... Had there not been someone who loved and cared for you the minute you were born, you would not be here. We can't do this by ourselves. And I think for Jesus at this moment, it was a a deep acknowledgement for himself and those who were around him that there was this deep interconnectedness to the whole thing. That's the world of God. And, And this 
See, baptism is like poetry, and you know I bang on about poetry all the time, but, um, but it's like poetry in that there's no point asking, what does a poem mean? It's like asking, what does an, what does an orange mean? Well, it's not the right question. How do you experience an orange? Well, you squeeze it, or you just eat it, or you, you know, it's like, it, how do you experience a poem? What does it do for you? How does it uplift you? Does it leave you cold? Does it excite you? Does it move you? Whatever. It's not about the meaning that there is one. It's about the experience of which there's multiple. And baptism is a bit like that. It has all kinds of connotations to it. It, it, And one of them is this idea of the the kind of going into the earth in the water as as if you're kind of deeply connected to it all. And then being made alive in it. One of the great things about baptising people down the beach or in a river, which I've been privileged to do on a few occasions, is that you're still in the water. So you wade out into the water to about waist deep and you grab the person and you dunk them in and and then you hold them down and then you pull them out and you're both dripping with water and you're still kind of right in the middle of it all. That's the the kind of the, uh, the real tactile nature of it. And yet, in that moment, not only are you a part of it, but you're f- you sort of feel a part of it in a different way. Particularly if you're down the beach and it's freezing cold. You, you, you know what it's like if you go for a swim and it's cold, you can't catch your breath. And, but when you go out of the water, you're, you're more alive than you've been for ages. You just suddenly feel there and present. Like the poem said, like a baby out of a womb, like a corpse out of a tomb, like a prisoner out of a locked room. And so when Jesus comes up out of this moment, what does he hear? This extraordinary statement, which is repeated again at the end of his life. And any careful reader of these texts recognises the link between the two. This is my son, the beloved. My son, the beloved, with whom I am well pleased. And when does he hear this? It's right at the beginning of his time in ministry, the beginning of his adult public life. He hasn't done anything. I think we were saying this a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about baptising children, as we do often over there. We're baptising someone who's not actually done anything useful in the world and won't do for a long time. We're not baptising those children. And Jesus was not baptised and told that he was the beloved because he'd done extraordinary things. He was told he was the beloved because he existed. He was alive in the world. The whole beginning of our story, the precious story we take right from the very beginning is that God made the world and made individual human beings like you and me in the image of God to be like God. And it's easy when we hear those words over and over again, image of God, I say, yeah, that, that's fine. But it's Julian of Norwich, the, the great English Middle Ages mystic, said it's not only being made like God, be, but being made of God. We're actually made out of God. It's very deep and powerful. And Julian spent much of her life trying to not understand this in an intellectual sense, but to experience this, to have this become so much a part of who she was, 
that it became her entire life. And that's why we know of her, because she was somebody, people were drawn to her, drawn to be alongside her, to, sometimes to hear what she had to say. And she did write some, and we've got that, that text. But it was more, as, as we understand it, that people wanted to be near her. There was something about who she was because she was trying to live this experience not only to be made like God, but to be made of God. This is why it's such a joy to baptise children because they don't have to have done anything. We're pouring water on them because they're alive, because they're one of us, because they're made of God. This is the beginning of everything for Jesus. It's the beginning of everything, particularly when we're baptising somebody really small. When we look at the baptism at the beginning of every year, as we do, it's always this Sunday. After Christ, the last Sunday of Christmas was last Sunday. It's always the baptism of Jesus. It, it's always an opportunity to be reminded of the extraordinary gift that it is to be human and to be made by God in the image of God and to be made of God. There's a wonderful writing, you may know of the 14th century mystical book called The Cloud of Unknowing. It's very famous. No one knows who wrote it. But it's a wonderful book about trying not to understand but to deeply experience the living nature of being alive in God, made of God. It's a wonderful book and it's all over the internet and there's copies. You can buy uh, print copies of it all over the place. It's been in print ever since. But there's also a second book that this person wrote um, and it's called The Council, um, sorry, the, the Book of Privy Council. Um, and it's not as well known, but there's one part of that where the author says... What is important is not what you are. So it's not important that you have the name that you have or that you are a particular gender or you have a particular level of education or a particular nationality or skin colour. Those things are not... It's not what you are, it's, nor is it what you've been able to achieve or be connected to. What's important, this author says, is that you are. Not what you are, but that you are. That you just are. That's what we do when we baptise babies. That's what's happening in the experience of the baptism of Jesus, amongst many other things. But one of the things that is happening is Jesus is being acknowledged for being alive and being present. And he experiences the voice of God reminding him of what has always been true since before his birth. And we get that in the, particularly in the Gospel of Luke, the stories, the song that Mary sings about what will happen when Jesus is born. For right from before he was born is this experience of being made in God and of God and being just present. Now I reckon that experience shaped the entire life that Jesus then went on and lived. Because there's this whole argument in here, which is sort of subtle in this one and, and uh, not really sure why it's there. 
It's that John doesn't want to baptize Jesus because he understands the hierarchy. The more important person baptizes the least important person. That's the way the world always works. It's the important way to do it. I'm more important than that kid. That's why I... See, doesn't work, does it? I'm not more... No, none of us are. Jesus doesn't... It's as if Jesus, when, when you see him in that text, he doesn't so much inter, interrogate John about that idea of... The, the superior baptizes the inferior, is he just as ignores it. It's as if Jesus has no idea that they're supposed to be superior, inferior. It's as if he has no clue that the world is a hierarchy in which men are at the top and women are at the bottom, in which the poor are trodden on by the rich, in which the slaves are controlled by... It's as if he has no idea and decides, not even decides, just cannot imagine living any other way then that we are all made of God. We are all the beloved with whom God is well pleased. It's as if he just goes on then and lives his entire life like, no wonder people are confused. It's not as if he gets up and preaches and says, now, men, you should treat women differently. He just lives as if there's absolutely no difference at all between anyone absolutely confuses everyone, including the people who seek to follow him, his disciples. Because they still know that there's a proper way to do things. And Jesus not only ignores it, he just doesn't even recognise it. And it begins here, I think, in this moment of John saying, well, you know, this is the proper way to do it. And it's as if Jesus is saying, look, don't worry about it. I don't want to talk about it. It's too boring. Let's just do this. Because I know what's going to happen. Not because Jesus could see the future. He knew what was going to happen because he knew that God was saying to everyone everywhere, you are the beloved with whom I am well pleased. So I don't reckon he was at all surprised when he heard those words. Because he was saying that to everybody that he met from then on. You read the stories of what Jesus said and did. He was living that moment out all the time. You are the beloved. With you, you, me, well pleased. I always feel it's a bit like in the East End of London. Um, well pleased is, if you could say it in an East London accent, means really very cool, very good, very extraordinary. Um, the person is the who's the the food writer um, that ran all the restaurants. Jamie Jamie Oliver. He says well pleased. When he's, when he's made something really good. And I was, I don't think Jesus had an East London accent, um, or God. I don't know. But it's that sense of, not I'm just pleased, but like I'm so over the top about this. I'm so pleased. I'm so joyful. I'm so full of joy for this person, this individual. And the next one who's about to be baptized. And you, and the kid we baptized a couple of weeks ago, and the person out on the street waiting at the traffic lights and on and on and on. This is my son. This is my daughter. This is my child. The beloved with whom I am well pleased. <laughs>